why does identity matter so much? The right to know where you come from. Imagine coming home for Christmas and mom suddenly tells you, daddy is not your real daddy. You have to think of who you are again. You have to construct a different narrative of who you are. Your story has become bigger and you want to see that story. You want to see it full and you want to have that picture on the wall for you to show to yourself. That is identity to me. Six years ago, Laura Bosch was working for an NGO that campaigns for children's rights in the Netherlands. And uh, one of these days, a group of donor-conceived children would continuously ask me for my assistance. They wanted Laura's help because now they were adults. They had concerns about the doctor who had given their mother's fertility treatment, Dr. Jan Karbat. This was how the case came to my attention. And there were so many rumors. Mr. Kabat used sperm of a specific donor who had issues on the autism spectrum. Mr. Kabat mixed up his sperm, so potentially siblings were not siblings at all. Uh, he did not screen his donors. Mr. Kabat used his own sperm. It was just too much. Everybody knows something was wrong, but... Nobody was really looking into what we could do with these rumors. We need to to find a way to get this into court. We should make a case out of this. And that's what Laura did. In this episode, the daunting task of trying to get justice for Karbat's victims. And a secret recording that was passed on to Joey. I get an anonymous audio tape that contains some startling revelations about Kobat's legal, official family and how much they might have known about his deception. And they spoke that they already knew in the family that there was something wrong. I'm Jenny Kleeman, and from something else, this is The Immaculate Deception. Episode 6, The Nose Hair Trimmer. We're recording this in spring 2020, more than 11 years after Carbat's clinic was shut down and three years after the doctor's death. The fight to bring some kind of resolution to the people whose lives Carbat touched is still ongoing. A case is about to be heard in the Dutch courts that is their first opportunity to get any kind of justice. But it began in 2014, when Carbat was still very much alive and a group of people who were conceived at his clinic contacted Laura Bosch. Laura was training as a lawyer and working for an international children's rights NGO. Called Defence for Children here in the Netherlands. And uh, part of my work consisted of uh, looking into cases where children failed. Their rights were violated. One of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by this case and the other similar cases that, that I've found is it's something that you just feel in your gut is is totally wrong. And yet proving how it is wrong legally or who is wronged is really complicated. Yeah. I mean, what do you think 
what is what is wrong? What is the crime? Is it fraud? <laughs> is it assault? Is it theft of identity? Uh, if I knew the answer to that question. But this question actually allowed me to start studying uh, ethics because the law wasn't helping anymore. Uh, this goes to the question, what is actually harm in these cases? Uh, what's the harm if you're born in a certain situation that was not as you wanted it to be? And what kind of claims can you formulate as a, as a child or an individual towards the ones who created you? Laura was determined to build a case against Carbat on behalf of the donor-conceived people who'd approached her. But what kind of legal action could they bring? And who could represent them in court? And uh, we spent the next year or year and a half finding a lawyer willing to take on his case. That was really trying. But eventually, they found someone. My name is Tim Butos. I uh, work in Holland as a lawyer. Uh, and a little firm called Rex Advocaten, Rex Lawyers. Paul and I went to meet him at his office in the east of Holland, near the border with Germany. And we are in a small town called Wichen. Wichen? Wichen, yes. Wichen? Yes. (laughs) Only 40,000 inhabitants. Tim Butters sat across the boardroom table from us in a sharp grey suit and a red tie, friendly but serious. He's a busy man. I had to email him four times and text him twice before he replied and agreed to an interview. He said he doesn't talk to international journalists, but he listens to a lot of podcasts, so he said he'd make an exception for us. In 2016, Tim agreed to meet up with a group of donor-conceived children and some of their parents who were all seeking justice. They got together in a hired conference room in Utrecht. It was the first time many of these people had met each other in person, Now they were face-to-face, sharing the most intimate details of how their families were made. And they had a lot of questions. There were suspicions, unease about how Carbat ran the clinic, but no concrete proof of anything yet. Well, they asked me, uh, I think the administration is not right. They had concerns about a vital piece of paperwork called a donor passport. And that's some basic information about the donor. It says uh, his height, his weight, how old he is, if he's married or not, what his job is, uh, the color of his hair and his eyes. And there, there were some examples where a mother asked for the donor passport right after the birth of the child. She got it. And at, when 16 years old, the child asked to the clinic for the donor passport and he, they sent it to her. And it was completely different. It looked really like Kabat just made the passports up. Other details emerged. By then, they had suspicion that Kabat used his own semen. But the only reason that they told me was because the semen was warm when uh, introduced. So the women felt that the semen was warm when yeah. it was put inside their bodies. Kabat came from out of the other room and told them, now I really have good sperm and for sure you're going to get pregnant now because this sperm is excellent. Well, they had doubts about if that was correct and if, if, if it was the sperm that agreed upon. They were wondering, couldn't it be the sperm of Kabat himself? Tim knew they needed more than rumours and suspicions if they were ever going to bring a case against Kabat. He needed the doctor's DNA to prove he actually was the father of his patient's babies. And he needed it quickly. Kabat was 88 in 2016. But getting him to agree to a DNA test seemed impossible. From the beginning on, Kabat told us, well, it's not true and it's not possible because uh, I lost my prostate. 
um, and I'm not fertile anymore, so I can be the father of these children. Uh, but he wouldn't cooperate. So I thought, why do you don't want to cooperate? If if you if it's not true, then uh, yeah, you can prove it by working and cooperating with us. And when he didn't, I thought, well, maybe there's more about this. That's true, actually, isn't it? It should be very, very simple. If if yes, if he's if he's not the father, just prove you're not the father. Tim was determined to keep working on the case, even without a DNA sample. A year later, he was ready to bring legal action. Corbat's clinic had been closed for nearly a decade, but the doctor was still living in the same building. The stalk still nailed to its roof. I sent him a letter. In the letter, I told him, well, you, you may, you, there's a lot of wrongdoings, and I advise you to send this to your insurance company. So, and I didn't get a letter back, nothing. So then I called him. And Carbat picked up the phone. And he, uh, he sounded very happy, strangely. He said, ah, oh, Mr. Britos, yes, I received your letter. Yes, yes, uh, I sent it to my insurance company. Everything's right, okay. The doctor seemed totally unfazed. Okay, thank you. <laughs> the conversation was over. And I thought, well, there's, not, there's something wrong with him, I think, because he's supposed to be scared now. Tim didn't know it then. But this would be the last he ever heard from the doctor. In a matter of months, Carbat was dead. So we had a big problem then. What to do? Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies. The podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. In spring 2017, children's rights activist Laura Bosch was working alongside Tim Butters to find legally admissible proof that Carbat used his own sperm to inseminate his patients. They were bringing proceedings to try and compel Carbat to provide them with a DNA sample. Just a week before, we were finally, finally ready with the civil suit or the file that would have been sent to Mr. Carbat to announce that we were trying to get him into court. And then all of a sudden I was called by the lawyer and he said, well, he actually died. Some of the mothers heard that he died. I thought, well, I don't know anything about it and I didn't hear anything about it. There were no uh, death certificates or, or no nothing in internet. So for us, he was still alive, but the rumors were so strong. My colleague just picked up the phone and called all the uh, um, death barriers. They rang all the undertakers in the Rotterdam area. 
And they asked them, uh, did you uh, bury Kabat? And then the last one we called, said, yes, uh, two weeks ago, we had a, a funeral of Kabat in, in here. So then we knew. Um, <laughs> I was born in Barendrecht, uh, near the clinic. And um, for the first... This is Inge Herlar, one of the 60-something Karbat kids, the one who came up with the tongue-in-cheek keeping up with the Karbastians reality TV idea we heard about in episode four. She grew up in the same neighbourhood as the clinic. I cycled to school every day near uh, over the dike, <laughs> uh, where the clinic was, uh, was yeah. We're going to hear from Inga properly in the next episode, but I wanted to include part of her story now because she has a really unique connection to Karbat's death through the man who is her legal father. My father has always worked as an undertaker. Uh, at some point he retired, but he was still working at the, at the institute to uh, well, help out and uh, to drive the car. Yeah. The hearse, yeah. yeah. I was there for dinner at Sunday. And he said, oh, you know who's in our cooler at the moment? The doctor. So we talked about it. He always talked about uh, who's... Oh yeah, who's passed away in the village because it's a small village and he's uh, helping out at the undertaker. And after the funeral, we heard, we found out that I was his daughter, his biological daughter. So my legal father has buried my biological father, which I think is hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you think? (laughs) But there was nothing for Tim to laugh about. His legal case had been thrown into crisis. Eventually, News of Karbat's death became public. And afterwards, there was an article in the newspaper about it that the relatives kept it secret and just declared the news afterwards. Why would they keep it secret? I don't know. It complicated the case extremely because part of our case was asking for his DNA. And seeing he was dead, it would become a different story. He could not consent to having his DNA being extracted with a mound swap. But the mothers, fathers and donor-conceived children still wanted to continue with the case. 23 persons wanted to start uh, proceedings against Kabat to get his DNA to compare it to them. They had three options. Option one was to dig up the corpse of Kabat, but that would be really harsh. We did not want to go there. There was option two. We tried to find an alternative way of getting DNA from Mr. Kabat by asking on television whether one of his family members would be willing to come forward and uh, give his DNA. None of Kabat's family responded to the appeal. But there was a third option. Uh, we asked the judge for permission to go to the house of Kabat to get articles that were used by Kabat and to seizure them for evidence. Two weeks after Kabat died, a bailiff uh, rang on the door from uh, Mrs. Kabat and he told her, yeah, we have to come in to get some stuff from your house. She said, oh, I denied you, cannot go in, I don't want to cooperate. Four police officers went in and they searched, searched every room, uh, um, the bathroom, the bedroom, everything, and took, uh, took this stuff from their house. The comb and a nose trimmer, things he used with DNA on it. They seized the trimmer Corbat used to clip his nose hair. It still contained a few hairs. Would the doctor have ever thought this little personal hygiene device would betray him? But there were still legal hurdles to come. 
They'd won the right to seize his DNA, but not to test it. The judge decided that we could get the DNA from these articles, but they had to go into the safe. Carbat's defence lawyers were trying to stop anyone from accessing it. Tim would need to win his clients the right to have it released so it could be tested and eventually compared against the DNA of those who suspected he was their biological father. It was a very tense situation. The, the public tribune was full of um, donor-conceived children or individuals, I should say, with their families. They were all upset and they felt this was a moment where their story would be heard. The lawyer gave a very compelling speech about why this was a violation of the rights of these these persons. And the, the lawyer of the, the estate of Mr. Kabat or and of his, uh, his uh, wife, she was very strong in denying everything. It was like a clash. There was this group of people who said something very bad has happened to us and we feel violated. And the, the other party said it did not happen. Why are you saying this? It, it was like a... Soap series. Two years passed. And then, in February 2019, the judge gave her verdict. She ruled in favour of that claim and everybody was cheering, basically. People were crying and falling in each other's arms. It was, it was emotional. It truly was. I mean, people felt recognized. Of course, it didn't. It wasn't closure for everything, but it was a landslide decision because for the first time, donor-conceived individuals got to claim something from their potential genetic father that was previously withheld from them. Let me explain what Laura means here. In the Netherlands, only people conceived after 2004 have the right to know who their donor father is. This verdict was the first time donor-conceived adults born before 2004 were allowed to investigate the identity of their biological fathers. The old nose hair left in Carbat's trimmer gave them a right to know who they were that they never had before. And I think that was reason why some people would cry when this verdict came about. And it was a very emotional setting and it meant a lot. The hair was tested and for the first time... After years of nagging doubts and suspicions, dozens of people could finally say for sure that Jan Karbat was their father. But there were still so many who felt denied justice, especially the women who'd been Karbat's patients. What about the mothers, though? I mean, couldn't you make a good case to say that the mothers had been assaulted? Because whilst they consented to the procedure, they didn't consent to that specific procedure. Something happened inside their bodies that they didn't want to happen. Yeah, of course. Actually, the mothers that were uh, donor-conceived with the semen of Kabat, they told me I've, I've, I felt raped by him because I was there in a room, uh, naked, waiting for the treatment. He went in the, in the room next door and he came back with uh, warm sperm. And well, it, it feels like, uh, like a, yeah, you, can, you can say a medical rape. That's pretty much how Lydia had described her experience to me. She told me she was misused, abused by the doctor. Even though the mothers were clearly Carbat's victims, they were largely absent from the media coverage of the case. If you Google Carbat, you'll see image after image of the Carbat kids, of Carbat 
the clinic, the court, and Tim in his suit. But no mothers. It seemed strange to me, given what I'd seen about other cases abroad. There have been American cases of doctors fathering children Mm -hmm. that they've helped create. And when I've read coverage of those cases, the focus is a lot on the mothers and and the violation of the mothers. And that doesn't seem to be the case in, in how this has been looked at in this country. Can you explain that? These cases were brought forward by a children's rights organization and donor-conceived individual organization. It wasn't a litigation for damages by the parents. This is a movement uh, where where donor-conceived individuals start to to claim their rights. Do you think in some respects that has denied the mothers the status of victimhood in, in the kind of wider public view here? Yeah, of course, you're competing for the limelight. That's totally true. And um, I would have loved for a women's rights organization to step up and support because we, we really should have those who are the victims speak for themselves and not for others. The same goes for the fathers. I would love for a, for an organized man group to say, well, this is not how we perceive fatherhood in our society. And this is like a this robing of what it means to be a, a father. Yes, please join the stage. Why hasn't that happened? I think there's still a taboo on procreation. And if it doesn't work out in your bedroom, you have to go and ask for help at the doctor's office. Yeah, that, that, that might hamper proactive position-taking by these, these groups. Now that Karbat is dead, no criminal charges can ever be brought against him. But there is an ongoing civil suit, a legal fight to claim damages against his estate and Rita Karbat as its executor. 53 plaintiffs, people conceived in the clinic, Carbat's former patients and their partners, are in the process of suing for the financial and emotional damages that the doctor inflicted on them. Joey is one of them. So your case is against his estate and his family yeah. because you feel that they could have done more and could be doing more to put things right. Yeah, yeah. Is this about... What you want is an admission of guilt and an apology, or do you feel that money is would make it right as well because you have expenses? I mean, what would justice? What what does justice look like for you? For me, an apology that that's justice, and also an apology from the government because they had to supervision all uh, of what's happened, and they did not. But yeah, for my mom, I would like to have a, f- a financial compensation because she's 66 and I don't think that a woman of that age should deal with this kind of uh, problems. What difference would compensation make to you? Mm, I don't think that it makes a difference, uh, but I think there has to be a compensation and f- for my mom or for, for the families that has uh, affected by it. Uh, but yeah, that would not cover what happened, mm. but that's something. Since his death... Much of the anger felt towards Jan Karbat has been redirected towards his widow, Rita. We tried to contact her. Her lawyer has said she won't talk to us. But how much did Rita really know? How much did any of the doctor's legal family know? There isn't much about Karbat's legal family in the public domain. 
None of his official children have ever given interviews. But we do know that Rita wasn't his first wife and that he had children in previous relationships. I thought nothing about Jan Korbach could surprise me anymore. Until Tim told me this. Well, he had 22 children with three different spouses. and um... He had 22 official legal children. Yes. I mean, surely this is building up a picture of somebody who really wants his DNA to remain on planet Earth. If you add the 22 legal children Carbat had from his relationships to the 60 or so he fathered by deceiving his patients, that brings the total number of children of Carbat to well over 80. And Tim told me something else. A child of Carbat, a normal child, uh, a legal child, had given his DNA to FIOM database. Mm. And the FIOM database is the Dutch database for DNA. It turns out that long before they got their hands on the nose hair trimmer, one of Carbat's legal children had already quietly come forward and volunteered his DNA to the official body that looks after donor-conceived children in the Netherlands. Of course, they still needed Carbat's own DNA to bring a legal claim against his estate, but the DNA from Carbat's son provided an important clue for those trying to piece together their identity. Tell me about that son of Carbat. Do you know who it was? No. No. You don't know why he did it? Uh, no, I don't know why he did it. Uh, well, I, I, I can guess why he did it. But he gave a sperm to the DNA database and explicitly told them, you can only use it if Kabat, my father, has died. But he's not spoken out at all or, or, or ever spoken publicly to explain? No, no. Because it's interesting, given that his his family, his immediate family, as in his, his wife at the time of his, his death, and they, that they were so protective of him and uh, not wanting to cooperate with the case. Yeah. The idea that one of his children would go out on a limb and do this is very interesting. Yes. And there was something else that suggests that other people might have heard that Carbat was betraying his patients. They get an anonymous audio tape. He was told it was a recording of one of Carbat's legally recognised children. Uh, who was talking to a mother that thought that her child was from the doctor and they spoke that they already knew in the family that there was something wrong. Joey didn't share that recording with us, but someone else did. It's been circulating on WhatsApp and private Facebook groups. We think it was made around five years before Carbat's death and that it's a recording of one of Carbat's many children from a previous relationship speaking on the phone to a woman who suspects she was inseminated with the doctor's sperm. We can't verify it conclusively, but we do think it's likely to be genuine. Many of the details revealed in the conversation, timelines and concrete facts, match what we've heard from other sources. To protect their privacy, we've decided not to reveal the gender of the Carbat child on the recording, and we've distorted their voice. But this is what we've learned. They back up what Tim told me about the number of official children Carbat fathered and go even further, saying Rita is his fifth wife and he has at least five children with all of them. They say he had a few extramarital children from when he was married to their mother, 
and that they know of at least 22 children Carbat conceived naturally. They confirmed that a brother had donated his DNA to help people conceived in their father's clinic because the brother was fed up with their father always getting away with everything and wanted the truth to one day come out. They say, my old man didn't live an honest life. He didn't approach things right. He misbehaved his whole life. He was always in a position to be able to. He's never really been punished. He got fired once when he was the director of a hospital by the head of the provincial states. So that's some sort of punishment. Look, he's an extremely intelligent guy, but he isn't burdened by conscience or honesty. He just isn't bothered. It resembles psychopathy. He experiences little guilt. Next time, in our final episode. While the civil case rumbles on, I'll look at what the future holds for some of the people whose lives have been touched by Corbat in very different ways. The ones who worry how much of the doctor they might have inherited. So you're paranoid that you might... Absolutely paranoid. Yeah, that I'm narcissistic and that I'm so egoistic and... Uh, yeah, and not considering uh, the feelings of somebody else, of, of other people. The ones who can't escape the consequences of what he did. Every single day, everything that I do, I'm reminded of what Carbat has neglected to do, basically. And the ones whose lives are on hold because of him. I think there is absolutely uh, a chance of him being my dad. The Immaculate Deception is a Something Else production. It was written and presented by me, Jenny Kleeman. Paul Smith is the producer, with additional production from Arlie Adlington. Mixing and sound design comes from Will Short at Spoke Media. The editor and executive producer is Peggy Sutton. Thank you to Magda Saron, Dan Cocker, Mark Rivers and Steve Ackerman. If you identify with any of the issues we're reporting on and have a story you'd like to share with us, our email address is deception at somethingelse.com. <laughs>